Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Hampshire Business Show. My name is Chris Pastrana, and today we are here with Karen Testerman, running for New Hampshire governor. How's it going? Good. Thank you. So let's get started. Uh, tell me a little about yourself, uh, and you just say what you do, but I guess the party, your platform, and we'll start with Okay. I'm a Republican candidate for the governor of New Hampshire. I... Um, the reason that I'm running is because of the people who I've encountered who are uh, small businessmen who have been devastated by the current COVID uh, restrictions imposed by our current governor. Uh, the uh, people that I encounter are uh, small businessmen. Uh, they're also mothers and fathers, uh, people who have been going to hospitals, etc., or for day surgeries and can't their families can't members can't go with them to advocate for them. Those are the reasons that I'm running. Okay, yeah. So let's talk about the platform a little bit because I know COVID is one of those things that kind of hit everyone. Oh, yeah. Out of the out of you know from the side. So we'll talk a little bit about the current response. What you would have done a little differently kind of in that realm? So I am a con strict constitutionalist, and I'm also a microbiology major in college. And when this all came about and uh, they were singling out one particular virus, uh, it bothered me because there was a lot of fear and panic and control that seemed to be going on. And I just, it didn't make sense with my biology background mm -hmm. because we live in this ocean of microbes. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, but are, they're all necessary to make sure that our immune systems are reacting properly. Yeah. So, when, so when we wanted to close everything, it didn't make things just didn't add up and then as we were starting to get the data coming in and so forth like that it became more and more evident that this was not nearly as bad a uh, situation as the typical flu virus or some of the other uh, outbreaks that we've had in the past when we didn't close all of our businesses we didn't close our schools we didn't uh, mandate that everybody put on masks so um the there concern I started to have was with the, the um, control mechanism. And uh, as you go forward and, and what I would have done differently, I don't think I would have closed the uh, whole state down. I think I would have followed the uh, footsteps of, of Christy Nome from South Dakota, who mm -hmm. uh, said basically it's the people that if you give them the proper information, if you tell them what the, the dangers might be, uh, if you uh, reinforce what they can do to protect themselves, that they will come forward and do what need, needs to be done. And uh, so I would never have closed the whole state. Yeah. So I think when it came to how everything was handled, there was two very interesting kind of political sides of this. And one was how do we handle the, the, uh, the lockdown itself and then how do we handle the reopening? Those are two very different things. It was supposed right. to be 14 days. And then it very quickly just Can't went go. crazy after that. <laughs> more and more and more. Uh, and, and, you know, we're now on uh, over 60 emergency orders that this governor has uh, established with people. And he keeps referring back to 52. Well, 52 is 140 pages of dictation mm -hmm. on what you can do, how many people you can have in your business, uh, what activities you can do. For a while, they were restricting, for example, the hairdressers couldn't uh, blow dry their hair, but yet you could go to the 
to the pet salons where uh, Dutch was getting taken care of, right? Yeah. And Dutch could get his hair blown dry at the same time. And some of the restrictions just aren't making any sense. And the latest one where uh, we are now mandating masks for any group uh, gathering that's over 100 is highly restrictive. And it's, I believe it's more now starting to infringe on our First Amendment rights. Okay. So, because uh, we're going to get into some very contentious areas as far oh, as... Yeah. Spend any time on Facebook, you know. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I guess we can talk about that. The You talk about being a strict constitutionalist. Right. And then from the very beginning, there's been a big separation about, again, how to handle the lockdowns, what are our liberties, even in um, case of the pandemic. You want to talk about your policy and how you would have handled at least that side of it? Yeah. Well, hands? from if you look at the Constitution, mm-hmm. the governor has some very specific uh, things that he's allowed to do. Mm-hmm. And one of them is, as an emergency order, if we are under attack, but we are not under a physical attack. Uh, we, ha- we have this virus out there that could po- have potentially uh, created some harm. But that's public safety, and that's a different thing altogether. So I think that um, stepping outside of the Constitution and and saying this is what we're going to go ahead and do is is something that's really um, a violation of what it really is. And so, uh, and the Constitution, if you really look at it, our founding fathers wanted the people to be uh, exercising their personal responsibility and uh, that the role of those people who were elected was severely limited in what they could and they could not do. And right now, it seems like it's flipped uh, itself on its head, and we are now having this very basic situation that we had when our founding fathers were fighting against the taxation, against the... um, misrepresentation, the the control, you know, going out and marking which trees could be cut because uh, you were saving the very, very tall ones for the, for the, uh, uh, the king's ships mm-hmm. for their masts. Uh, those are the kinds of restrictions that we seem to be getting, not the same exact ones, but very similar type mm-hmm. uh, activity. And that's that's the thing that I think we're starting to lose our liberties, and if we don't fight back, we're going to lose them completely. Yeah. So this is a good uh, conversation to get into because there's very clearly, just like I said, spend any time on Facebook because that's a good representation of reality. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there is a good part of the population that is not only completely okay with the lockdowns, they would take that even further. They would mandatory everybody, no matter where you are, they want you to have a mask on or whatever. How do you feel about that as far as, because it has become a little bit political? Right. Um, well, I, th- I think that a lot of people really do believe in their hearts that the government's trying to do what's the right thing for them. Mm-hmm. But the other part of it is, like I said, looking at it scientifically, the numbers don't add up. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to do some restriction, if you wanted to do some investigation, you should have looked early on when we started realizing that most of the people who were succumbing to this mm-hmm. either had um, coexisting maladies, um, you know, they, they had been smokers all their life and they yep. were uh, suffering from cancer, or they, um, they had asthma, or they had a heart condition, or they had diabetes, 
or they were over a certain age. Then what we should have done was we should have looked at the data that was coming through and said, okay, this, what's going on here? How do we mitigate this? How do we help those in the senior population so that they don't necessarily succumb? Uh, and uh, let the, the rest of the population do what they needed to do. Let the kids go to school so they could learn. Let the, the uh, business owner continue, continue to make a living. Let the father go to work. Let the mother go to work. I mean, there, there's all these things that have not happened simply because we've closed everything down. Yeah. And then, so we, we've enforced the, the lockdowns, <clears throat> and then we got ready to start opening them. Okay. So kind of calling back to what you were saying about personal liberties and how that's kind of been infringed on. Um, if you remember, when we started having the reopen protests, that was national coverage for how evil these people were. <laughs> and then, again, shortly later on, we had the riots for the Black Lives Matter and all that stuff. Um, and those were handled very, very differently, very poorly. Very so, differently. So I wasn't going to get too, too much in that because that's kind of a different conversation. But personal liberties as far as your stance on being the governor. <laughs> well, absolutely. So what I would have done was I would not have said to our people, you have to put on masks, you have to social distance, like the current governor did. I would have said, uh, absolutely, you know, go ahead and live your daily lives. Those people that are coming across the border that are um, supposed to supposed to be peaceful riders, but who are marking up our, our streets with graffiti, who are breaking windows, who are doing various other things. They didn't do a lot of that in New Hampshire. Yeah. I think primarily because they didn't know who was going to be on the other side with with a firearm. But, uh, but the fact that we just opened up the doors and said, well, you can come across and you don't have to social distance and you don't have to wear a mask uh, is not respecting the people of New Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so, in a lot so a lot of people would say or it's kind of fear-mongering, I would say, you know, oh, we're not losing our liberties or anything like that. Right. Do, do you want to throw anything out there kind of as a last point about that? Well, we are because <laughs> quite honestly, you know, now we have people that are afraid that believe that that mask is going to stop the virus from coming mm -hmm. into their their world, yeah. right? And yet, if you look at the science behind it, in fact, pick up a box of the masks and it will tell you outside, this will not prevent a, a virus. Yeah. And so what has happened is, is that the people have been lulled in this false sense of security that that mask is going to protect them. Mm -hmm. So when they see somebody else without one, they feel like they're threatened. And, and, and this is the fear and the panic and the and the unreasonableness that is now starting to uh, generate everywhere. Yeah. All right. So. So yes. So, COVID nineteen is kind of the black swan event that everyone's talking about right now. But right. let's. But if we ever get past this, right. there's more to being the government than just that. So let's talk about some of your other positions. So, strict constitutionalist. Pro-business. Yes. <laughs> I'm just reading right off your list here. Right. Pro-life, pro-gun. Those are, it's a, it shouldn't be controversial for the most part, uh, but they tend to be. <laughs> right. So. Well, so uh, a lot of people think that because our, our revenue comes from property taxes mm -hmm. and then it comes from the, from the business community overall. Yeah. And um, they also come from other 
uh, revenues that we get from other taxes, like when you go and buy a piece, a, a bottle of liquor, or you go to a store and you are to, uh, to a a, uh, a feed or not a feed store, but to a, a, a gun store mm-hmm. or someplace and buy a a, a license. To uh, those those are some fees that are coming in. When you mm-hmm. register your car, you're getting a fee. So those are revenues that are coming in. Um, the the reality is is that if we are doing what constitutionally we're supposed to be doing uh, as a as a government, there are a lot of our departments that would be non-existent, yeah. that would be left up to the local community, and uh, we're yet we spend our our federal dollar goes down to Washington D.C. It gets. Uh, a, goes through the process of paying for the the personnel that are going to, you know, the administrative costs, basically. Mm -hmm. And then they send it back to us with a grant. We're supposed to match those funds, and there are strings attached to how do we spend it and what we do with it. So uh, when you really start looking at what should the government be doing in reality, if we were to reduce our spending and not be doing... uh, you know, not going outside of the bounds of, of what the Constitution really says for us to do, then um, we would be basically cutting our revenue, uh, or not, our, not our revenue, but living within the revenue that yeah. we have. Because mm-hmm. that's, again, it's an area that really shouldn't be super controversial, you know, budgeting. <laughs> you know, we as but everybody have to wants, do yeah, but the problem is, is that we want you to cut the budget, mm-hmm. but don't cut, take it out of my back pocket. Yeah. It's like, I don't mind if you cut down trees, but don't cut down the tree in my backyard, you know? Yeah. yeah. And like I was saying, so this is an area where there's a lot of pushback. So as a Republican governor, no matter what you do, you're going to get a lot of pushback from the Democrats. Right. And vice versa. Right. Naturally, that's how the system works. And any system you go after, you're going to get strict opposition from the Democratic Party. So how do you kind of navigate some of that in the political world? Well, so what what the governor really should be doing is using their bully pulpit mm-hmm. and talking to the, to the people of New Hampshire and saying to them, you know, uh, this is what I'm trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. This is what where we're going. These are the stumbling blocks that are in the way. And if it happens to be, uh, say, uh, Joe Smith, who is a Democrat, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to call him out and I'm going to say, this is the person you need to talk to. And you, the constituents in his area, if you really believe like I do that this needs to be addressed, then you need to call him. And you call upon the people to do their job and and engage them. Because what right now what's happened a lot throughout history is that the people have become complacent Mm -hmm. and they're not as engaged as they should be. So they're not vigilant. And that is the price of freedom. If yeah. you, if you, eternal vigilance, isn't that what mm-hmm. it says? Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And so if we're not observing what our elected officials are doing and keeping them in check, then we're not doing our job. Mm-hmm. So that that's a very good point. And it's one I want to jump into a little bit. Sure. So at the federal level, at the federal government, national politics, it's right. pretty easy to stay informed because it's covered 24-7 right. on the national media. At the state level, how do you think we should be handling that type of stuff here? 
because that's an issue because finding out what's going on in Concord, even though we're only 20 minutes away, is much more difficult. Right. Well, actually, it's not as mm-hmm. difficult as we would think, okay. except if you don't have access to the Internet. Mm. If you don't have access to the Internet, then it really does become a challenge because yeah. you have to you are reliant upon your local uh, newspapers or your local radio station to be covering some of these issues. And, of course, they're only going to cover what the people who are doing the reporting or the people who are uh, on the um, radio are going to be telling you. So, uh, But if you've got access to the, to the Internet, you can go up to gencourt.nh.us And you can actually go in and find out what bills they're being recommended. You can find out where the bill is. You can find out any amendments that are being put on it. You can find out when the um, public hearing will be on each bill. And that's the beauty in New Hampshire. This is an extremely unique state when it comes to politics. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes to our government, not only do we have the third largest legislative body in the world... But we, um, we don't pay our legislators much. Mm-hmm. They, by constitution, they're only allowed $100 a year. Yeah. And, uh, and then they have to pay taxes on it, and they also have to pay for their license plate and so forth like that. But, so, uh, but, uh, but every bill that is introduced is supposed to go to a committee, and that committee is supposed to hold a public hearing, so that the people can go in and and voice their opinion on it. Mm -hmm. So once you find out how that works, I know not everybody can go because obviously if you've got a day job, you can't go. But you can write a letter. You can pick up the phone. And that's the other thing. Because we have so many legislators, we have the best representation any place in the United States. One representative in New Hampshire probably addresses about 3,300, 3,400 people. In every other state, it's tens of thousands Mm. that that one representative reaches. And so when you pick up the phone, a lot of times you're not calling into their office. Their office is their home. And so you're calling them directly. Or you can run into them in the grocery store. Uh, It's not difficult to get to our elected representatives. And so we as the people have a responsibility to keep an eye on what's going on with those issues that are near and dear to our heart. Now, not everybody can cover all the issues in in the whole state. But you may be really concerned about what happens in fish and game. Well, then you need to concentrate on fish and game and what are the bills that are coming up in front of that committee and how are they going to impact me. Okay. Now, what do people learn more about the committees themselves? You can go and actually to that same website, website? Gen, gencourt.nh.us. All right, cool. I'm going to write that down just so. Yeah, it's you know. G E N C O U R T dot N H dot U S. And it'll take you, in fact, when you start to Google it or, mm-hmm. you know, do your search engine on it, the first three letters usually bring up New Hampshire's yeah. legislative offices. And so when you go into that, you should really take the time. You can go in when the legislatures are in session and uh, actually watch the whole live streaming of what's going on. Mm-hmm. You can also... Um, like if uh, you wanted to go back and listen to a prior hearing, you can now 
with the uh, advance in technology, you can yeah. actually go back and listen to that too. Yeah, technology is amazing. It is I love, amazing I love when, when it works. <laughs> yeah, when, <laughs> when it works. It works. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple of the other things that typically come up. So in the last couple of years, since we've had a very heavily democratic uh, state government, a lot of gun laws come up often. Right, right. <laughs> Do you want to talk about your position as far as Second Amendment? <laughs> I think, I, you know, I'm really, really proud that we are a constitutional carry state. Mm-hmm. And, and the only reason that you need to get a license or apply for a license at all is if you think that you're going to be traveling from a, a, to another state and you want that reciprocity. But you don't have to have that. That's very, very good in the state. What I would like to see is us become an, an example for the rest of the country mm-hmm. on uh, making us the exam, uh, the premier place where you can use your firearm, that you are protecting your uh, government from becoming tyrannical, yeah. uh, that you are uh, allowed to... You, I mean, it's not just for going out and hunting, mm-hmm. and, or, but it's also for standing your ground when you're protecting your house. It's also for um, that government, when it does become more dictatorial mm-hmm. like it is now, uh, I, I don't... Uh, I wouldn't dismiss the possibility that there might be armed conflict over this constant uh, control of everything that we're doing right now. Yeah. I don't know how frustrated people are going to end up. But uh, And the other thing that I would like to see our government do is to actually start protect, making more protections out there for our firing ranges yeah. so that they uh, continue continue to do what they do, which is allow a person to go out and actually practice with that implement that they have and uh, and not be harassed and, and coerced because they happen to be within 500 yards of somebody's backyard because yeah. that person happened to buy that property and build on it. Hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's an infringement on them. So I'd like to see our firing ranges better protected yeah because you know that's been coming up a lot is they're they're attacking the firing ranges for like noise ordinances and stuff like that to try to shut them down and i don't know so i don't know if there's anything that can be done about just the craziness that some of the things that are brought up to legislation but i guess it comes down to personal responsibility yes it depends (laughs) upon uh you know and it would be interesting to me so at one time the state of new hampshire only the legislature met every other year not every year okay so every year that the legislators meet, they tend to put in about somewhere between 800 and 1,000, 1,200 different bills, depending oh, wow. upon how many. Well, you've got 400 legislators, yeah. and if they each put in three bills apiece, you're up to 1,200, right? Yeah. So, um, and what I would really like to see uh, is for them to start moving back to that every other year. Mm-hmm. But you get a lot of pushback on that. So if the first year that they're in office, that's the budget year. That's when they're considering uh, what revenue do we have, how are we going to spend it, and so forth like that. And they and the governor obviously puts forth a, a budget that he was uh, he or she is proposing. And so if that first year was con- that's the only thing that they could really pass. Yeah. And that each of them were the legislators were still divided into their own committees. It would be really, really great, in my opinion, if they, if each committee started to look at all the legislation that impacts their, is under mm-hmm. their purview, and decide if 
Is it unconstitutional? Is Should it have been sunsetted? Is it referring to a bill that's uh, been repealed? Is it redundant of something else that's gone? Let's clean it up. Because right now, in 1950, I think we had four books that had all of the laws in them. Mm-hmm. Today, we're up to 130. Wow. You know, That's a lot. So yeah. could we now winnow that back down yeah. to where it should be so that government isn't so onerous and uh, controlling. Yeah, because that's that's a big problem. So right now, the defund the police thing has been coming up a lot. Oh, yeah. And so, but there is something to what you just said. So for every law in the books, you run the chance, even if it's statistically small, to have a deadly interaction with the police, no matter what it is. Right. So maybe those 100 books full of laws should be looked at. That's a very good reason to you know justify looking at those and starting to remove some of those. Oh, absolutely. I know that's not popular for a lot of politicians. <laughs> no, it's not popular. But the the reality is is that uh, for schools, for example, mm-hmm. if you go in and you look at what the rules are, uh, in you know the the community elects their school board. Their school board should be responsible back to the taxpayers who elected them, and they should be uh, making sure those students are given the tools they need, not being indoctrinated with certain values. But if you go into the RSAs, our uh, Revised Standard Annotated, which are our laws, if you go into them and you start looking at it, there's a lot of responsibility that has been given to the superintendent. The superintendent's job is really an administrative job. It is not to oversee the curriculum. It is not to oversee the teachers. Mm. It is not to govern the school board. But Mm. it's the other way around. So that needs to be cleaned up. And the responsibilities for curriculum and uh, teachers and their performance should be given to the principals. And... The, uh, the care of the buildings and purchasing and so forth like that should then now be given back to the superintendent and the roles more clearly delineated. But they're very confused in the RSAs. Yeah. So that's, that's just an example of mm-hmm. something that needs to be done. And then, uh, you know, we've got the school boards association and the uh, administrative association that are telling the the school boards, how they're, what policies they should implement. And these are private organizations that are doing that. It's mm-hmm. not the elected people that we, the people, put into to power there. So we need to start taking some of that uh, back, and that's only going to come when people get involved and start attending those meetings and start saying, you know, wait a minute, this is, this is where you're supposed to be. Yeah. So you bring up... I don't know how much it plays at the state level, but school choice is a big talking point. You know, in New Hampshire, I know it's a very homeschool-friendly state and charter schools and stuff like that. Um, but there is a big push nationally to crack down on these. What's your view as far as? Well, I'm a proponent of school choice. Mm-hmm. I think that parents need to be involved. Uh, in fact. Uh, my solution for uh, education is that the parents and the student need to choose who the teachers are and then then work with the teachers, actually. Uh, They need to be very, very involved in that because Mm -hmm. if your student isn't 
hasn't bought into what you're proposing, yeah. you're not going to get any cooperation with them. In fact, a lot of resistance. So if you can involve the student in the process and say, this is what needs to be done. Obviously, if you've got a child who's mentally handicapped in some way, then that's not going to apply. You're going to need a different team to get together. But basically, where parents are involved, I think they're the ones that should be really directing the education of their child. Mm -hmm. And in New Hampshire, we're very, very fortunate that we had this scholarship program that is unusual anyplace else in the United States because we will actually allot some of our scholarships to homeschoolers. Mm -hmm. so, so it's very, very important to, that we go in that direction. And ultimately, what I would like to see is that the um, money that we as a community expend for education would actually go with the child. That way the the parents can say this is a better fit for my child and that's where the money goes. Yeah, because I want to say, I need to look it up, um, you probably know better than I do. Years ago they essentially come down and said that they need to relook at how we fund the schools because property taxes, it was kind of unconstitutional yeah. because some school districts suffer greatly as far as, you know, how money is allocated. How, would you have any views on how you would change a little bit of that up? Well, that, that was a very interesting uh, wave of uh, what happened was they looked, uh, I don't know who it was that started yeah. the proposal, but uh, the United States was looked at and their constitutions in which it divided up into groups that would be very easy to change and push for more top-down uh, money coming in mm -hmm. so from, from the state. And uh, New Hampshire was in sort of like the third or fourth wave of that. But when you really stop and think about it, it may have been Part of the problem was not so much the inequality of, of, of the um, services being provided, but maybe it was really more of how was the school board allocating their money. Yeah. And uh, some places, I mean, just go across the state of New Hampshire and you'll have uh, the budgets spending anywhere from 40 to to uh, 40 to 85 percent of their total budgets going to the school. Mm -hmm. Now, my concern is is that we've got 90 percent of the population that is not in school, and yeah. yet they're taking the majority of the dollars. Yeah. And it's fine if it's being spent efficiently and effectively, but if you look at our scores nationwide, 50 percent of our kids are illiterate. And this is not good results, not when back in the 30s and 40s, we were up at 93% of our total population was literate. So something is not being done properly, yeah. and we need to go back and investigate what is it, find the root cause, and attack it. Yeah, because this is always an argument I've found entertaining as far, um, it typically comes from the Democratic side and the left, where they talk about, you know, more money for schools, more money for schools, more money for schools. Well, over time, we keep throwing tons of money and we're not getting better results. Right. So for the party that tends to hate money, you know, you, you clearly want a lot of it and you clearly don't know what to do with it. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of it out there, yeah. Yeah, yeah so that's kind of funny. So anyway, um, that's, that's a lot of the big talking points. Is there any other ones you wanted to kind of touch on briefly? Because I know in New Hampshire... I've been told from other um, people who've run for governor that as far as the powers the New Hampshire governor has, it's a lot 
more limited than other states. So, you know, their veto power is pretty strong. It's one of their best weapons. Right. Um, but is there any other things you wanted to cover that are well, big Well, it's platforms? interesting because the governor of New Hampshire is one of the weakest in the United States. Yeah. And uh, right now, our current governor is, is, is the weakest because not none of the elected bodies are in the same party with him. Mm-hmm. So that that becomes a, a stumbling block. The other thing that makes New Hampshire's governor weak is that the department heads do not automatically change when there's a regime change in mm-hmm. the corner office. So those are all on a rotating uh, system of so many years uh, of, of when they're... Um, Appointed, so mm-hmm. uh, a, a commissioner that was appointed this year may have four or five years to go, and the next governor is elected. Since go- governors are elected every two years, may not get to to appoint that particular uh, department head yeah. again. So uh, the department heads go on a more sequential type set setup. So they, that that makes them weak as well, mm-hmm. because it's not just coming in and saying I have a new agenda, yeah. everybody uh, yeah. exits, and I get to appoint everybody that's going to follow my agenda. You're mm-hmm. having to deal with the prior agendas as well. Yeah. Sort gotcha. of that deep state kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. That's pretty interesting. Oh, so thank you for joining me today. This has been good. Well, thank you, Chris, for having me. If anybody wants any more information, they can go to KarenTesterman.com. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for watching, and uh, definitely... Go to KarenTesterman.com. I'll put it, everything, all the links and stuff in the notes so everyone can see them and learn more because, like you said, we should be more active with uh, our politics. Absolutely. Hold um. us accountable. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Want more New Hampshire Business Show? Find us at iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and www.nhbusinessshow.com.